This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. Greetings, humans. I am very excited about today's installment of the Revenue Real Hotline. We have the great Sean Shepard here with us today. And this is a dude that's been at this at this business for about 25 years, I think. Hmm, his stats. So he started five companies, sold three of them, and has invested in 140 startups. Let's just say the man knows his shit. And it, it's funny, I'm, I'm playing around with monetizing the show. Like, how do I want to go about doing that? I'm making those decisions, and I'm really trying to avoid... Like the B2C model, friends, I don't want I don't want you guys to have to pay at all. Anyway, I've never done an episode where I was like, holy shit, man, that was like the, the value here, the investment. I don't think PhD is a strong enough word if you wanna like, you know, just rock out on the, you know, go or within the go-to-market space. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's like that. This is a great conversation. This is an insightful conversation. This is a conversation where you want to get your ass a, a pen and paper or a notepad and really capture, I mean, as much as you can from this brilliant, brilliant man. And if anybody has any thoughts or comments or questions about the show, definitely hit us up on the voicemail at 646 470 definitely want to hear your thoughts about about either this episode or any of the others if you find any value in things that we're discussing do tell a friend i take that as the highest compliment and as always thank you for listening thank you for listening thank you for listening and with that i'm going to shut up (laughs) i'm amy rehubchuk friends this is the revenue reel hotline and enjoy sean shepherd Welcome to the Revenue Real Hotline. I am trying to contain or keep my fangirling at bay. And (laughs) I legit, I don't think I've ever been more excited to not talk during a conversation than this one right here. So like, oh my gosh. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for making time for us today. Of course. I'm happy to be here, Amy. (sighs) Okay, so... Target audience is the experienced tech seller. Uh, Theme of the show, conversations about uncomfortable conversations in sales, which I I define broadly, right? So include revenue, all things go-to-market operations, of which you are world-renowned, and I'm sure able to speak to uh, all all aspects of, of the varied and often unspoken conversations that that need to happen but if you don't mind i i'd like to start by reading the recommendation post that i wrote remember with sales hacker do you remember sure yes okay so listeners all right here we go i'm navigating to the page okay so again this is on linkedin for sean shepherd about four years ago I decided to move to San Francisco from New York, fresh off one super sexy exit of my own. I got there and started blitzing immediately, formed new relationships, learn and grow, 
And I think I averaged something crazy like 10 events per week for a year. Nuts, I know. This pace was hard to sustain, obviously, but not for the reasons you'd think. It was hard to be reminded daily at the absence of any meaningful insights provided regarding strategy, the psychology of the buy, sustainable growth, markets, profit margins, and or cost and efficiency. No, your product will not sell itself, sadly. No, your story, your brand, your features will not help your sellers drive value in the market. Yes, profits and cost and efficiency matter too. It's not just top-line revenue. And then there was Sean. Sean gave a talk at a downtown WeWork somewhere in the 100-plus sessions I attended, and I remember how I felt to this day. His session was an extreme mind bender for me, communicated as the master outlier he masterful outlier he is. So Sean was the very best go-to-market strategist I encountered, hands down, no competition, and I connected with lots of them, air quotes, lots of them. Fast forward to 2020, it should surprise no one that Sean proactively approached Sales Hacker to, quote, see how he could help, end quote. And I mean, come on. I buy. I think you should too. Sean, you're the embodiment of brains, influence, and heart. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) How do you follow that? I, you know, I don't know. We're, we're just hitting the bar really high. So no pressure, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> and this is a, this is a judgment free zone, mistake friendly zone. And yeah. So with that, I mean, I wrote down a bunch of things that I'm super interested about when I was perusing through, you know, your, your most recent work. And I guess like you, you do a lot of speaking and a lot of talking about the innovation economy. And I, I think I, I'd like to start there, but I also, I, I was very taken with this idea of working with countries as well as companies and entrepreneurs. And so like it's the country piece of it and, you know, the whole be an intrapreneur inside of a big corporation, like, you know, Thomson Reuters, I think we had spoken about originally. Um, but that said, like what, <sighs> that's where I would like to start. However, there are two people in this conversation. And so I'm curious, uh, is there any is there any particular place where you'd prefer to start other than, again, define the innovation economy and speak to like, what is this coolness with working with countries? No, um, look, this is your show. I'm just paying rent. So um, <laughs> start anywhere you like. Okay, so what when you say innovation economy, would you define that for our listeners? Uh, I'll define it with it with a, with an interesting statistic. Um, so first, the abstract is is that the rate and pace of change has never been faster than it is today, and therefore the the need for an organization or a country or a company or a person uh, to be able to adapt to that change has never been more uh, critical than it is now. And the statistic that supports it is is that in the year two. 52% of, of companies that were on the S&P 500 index in the year 2000 no longer exist. Wow. By, I believe the year 2035, 30% or, or, or a third don't exist today. And if that's not indicative of the rate and pace of change in our society, I don't know what is. 
you know, where was Amazon 15, 20 years ago? And ask Jeff Bezos today, where's it going to be in 15 to 20 years? He's afraid it may not even exist. In 15 <laughs> we're, years. we're assuming that we let him back on the planet after his. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why he's been so successful. Maybe he's not from this planet or maybe he, maybe he doesn't deserve to be on this planet. Maybe he needs to be out there exploring uh, the future for all of us. But, but that's the idea. So, so if you agree that the rate and pace of change has never been greater than it is today, you know, what can you do to, you know, to be successful in the innovation economy? And to me, there's, there's, there's a few fundamental skills I think that are, need to be, that are, that are required to be successful in, in the innovation economy. The first is a mindset, to have a growth mindset, uh, to be a learn-it-all and not a know-it-all, um, to be someone that embraces feedback, um, rejects the word rejection entirely, removes it from their vocabulary, and is open to new ideas and new ways of doing everything at all times. And honestly, enters the world with a humble curiosity and an attitude that says, I don't know what I don't know yet, um, and uh, I want to be better. Um, and that my success comes from the success of, uh, of those who I, who I can touch and help. Um, here, here. <laughs> so that's the first one. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, uh, Dr. Carol Dweck at Stanford wrote a book called The Growth Mindset, um, specifically, and she was a child psychologist who was trying to understand um, what changed and what changes in humans between uh, the early age of childhood development and adulthood, and, and what causes that. And society at large kind of forces a, um, a top-down fixed mindset on us, right? Failure is not a good thing. But to me, it's only failure if you don't learn from it. And so we teach to the tests. You know, we, we study and learn to the tests. We're incented to not make mistakes. And, you know, I think by the time you're 18 years old, you're, t you're told no um, something like 17 times more than you're told yes. Um, and so all of those things condition us into a fixed mindset. And so you've got to break out of that. Uh, and you can actually start leveraging and incorporating growth mindset work instantly and see a different, I think, response from the, from the universe as a result of that. The second thing um, is, um, is what I call uh, just generally business acumen. Um, if you're gonna be a professional, you need to understand how businesses work. Yeah, uh, wait, does this include profits and yes. efficiency? Okay, okay, sure. and the numbers, sure. the financial? Um, yes, and you can do house. profit for good. You can do conscious capitalism. You can do, um, you know, you can win and so can everyone else. But you have to start from that point of, all right, what's a win-win scenario look like for me and my prospective customer? Um, what drives their behavior and how can I um, improve um, their world in a way that that's aligned with their behaviors uh, and their incentives. So don't just look at your customer, look at your individual prospect or customer and how they're measured in their work and how can you impact that in a quantifiable way Excellent. and be able to demonstrate that. And then how, how do their customers get measured and what success look like for them? Because ultimately that's what drives it. There's this value chain that you insert yourself into and you need to have a, a full view of the entire value chain and understand how businesses work, what problems are being solved, for whom, how, and what value is being created in the process. Um, and then how can you uh, actively participate in that? The third one is market acumen. 
everyone wants to talk to a subject matter expert these days. So how can you become a domain expert in a given area quickly? Leveraging your growth mindset, leveraging the idea of mastery where with intent, deliberate and practice over time, you can become a proficient, competent, proficient, ultimately a master of anything. If you don't believe me, read Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers on the concept of 10 years and 10,000 hours. Um, you can do it. You don't just have to be naturally born with some sort of talent to be great at something. Um, yes, it might be harder, but it's always harder in the beginning. And then as you develop that competency and proficiency, it becomes easier and easier and more predictable. Um, so can you ramp up and become an expert in a particular industry or sector you're selling into? So if you're selling into financial services, do you need to be a banker to understand how financial services businesses work? No. In fact, it probably is to your detriment if you're a banker. You're probably too far inside the well to see the ocean. So um, how do you ramp up quickly to become a subject matter or domain expert uh, in any given field or area? Um, you know, I have over 140 startup investments and I've started and sold five, com uh, started five companies, sold three. And I work across every industry sector and vertical. And because I'm able to, to, to step away and look at it, what, uh, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, I see the patterns that exist in all of them that are the same when you're taking a product or a service to market. It's about the stage of a product going to market. It's not about the product or the market. Um, you need to have people with the right mindset, skill set, execution framework, and set of behaviors to know how to do that differently. And that often is in the DNA of the humans that do it. Some people are suited better for zero to one than one to n, And it's okay to recognize that. What makes big companies continue to be successful is they've got great people that know how to manage and optimize what they already do. But what they also need are people that know how to create, design, and, and serve new needs for their existing customers or new customers with new products and services, or in different ways with existing customers. So that's, that's market acumen. The, the fourth is communication. How effectively can you communicate? in an honest, authentic, and genuine manner, the value you bring uh, to the world. Not how you do it or how it might be different. That stuff will come. But how do you create a signal in the noise of an ever-changing marketplace with a million startups offering a million different things and making uh, all these claims? Um, and that comes through how well you communicate value. Uh, so I talk about the importance of unique value propositions over unique selling propositions. What's the difference? The value proposition tells me what you do for me. A uh, selling proposition tells me what you do and how you do it. Um, and then what is, what's defines value are things that are measurable. So how do you quantify the change, um, and do it with metrics that, and units of uh, economic units that your customers understand and currently use to try and perform. Um, and so it's, it's about, because ultimately at the end of the day, in business to business selling, there's really only four reasons why anyone buys. It's to make more money, save more money, create and maintain a competitive advantage, which is a strategic one. Um, and my favorite, stay out of prison. Risk, liability. Yeah. Uh, mitigating those things. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the user level, there's a fifth one, and that's an emotional reason. So how do I take a negative emotion and turn it into a positive emotion? Frustration, angst, fear, um, uncertainty, doubt, you know, all these things that we go through as humans. And 
HBR wrote a great uh, article on the 16 elements of, of emotional value. Um, and each one of them described things that we all go through every day. So how do you use those to your advantage? Um, so that's, and then how do you clearly articulate a value proposition through storytelling? Um, narrative is, is the future of selling. So what's going on in the market today that's creating new problems and therefore new opportunities for you to solve them and then how you solve them um, is the story arc of a solid narrative. Um, and so being able to tell that before and after story in a very clear and succinct way to just get the people's attention long enough to get them to do what you really need them to do, which is give you, the, give you their time and tell you the truth so that you know whether or not there's a fit because you shouldn't be selling products to customers. You should be recruiting partners who share in your vision, agree with your reality and are willing to go on that journey with you. Um, and that's a different mindset. Um, and then finally, um, emotional intelligence, EI in the age of AI. It's the only thing that's going to separate us from the robots. Um, creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, um, brainstorming, um, empathy, um, placing yourself into the shoes of your customers and walking that journey to understand what they're really going through because no one cares what you know until they, know, they know how much care. you care. Yeah. Um, so those are the five that I try to work on every day as a person in some way, shape, or form. And I try to dedicate some time early in the mornings before I check my phone, uh, usually after I go to the bathroom, before I, go, <laughs> before I check my phone, um, to just read and absorb and listen and watch uh, content that helps me develop myself in those areas. And ironically enough, I get most of it from outside of the industries that I operate in because that's where the best stuff comes from. Because it's never about the industry or the sector. And it's great to stay up on what's going on with the trends and, and all that stuff's super important. And what other people in your industry and sector are doing from a best practices perspective. But, but ultimately, I think the most powerful ideas and the ones that are easiest to implement um, are really tied to just the human condition more than they're tied to any particular you know, industry or sector or product or service or, or profession. Uh, so I'm hearing that you too are a card-carrying member of Team Human, which... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yes, because it, it, people always ask me this too. They say, well, you know, how does your, how, how does your framework for helping companies find product market fit or commercializing new innovations, how does it apply to me? Because I'm different. Well, why are you different? Well, I'm B2B or I'm B2C or I'm B2B2C or I sell through channels or I sell hardware or I sell software or I sell a service or I sell SaaS plus service or, or I'm at this stage or I'm at that stage uh, or I'm a marketplace um, or if I'm life sciences versus FinTech. It's not about that. It's, not, it's all about H to H, it's human to human. And it's that learning framework of recognizing that what you have to do is engage in an analog fashion and in a very unstructured way initially with other humans to collect data that you can then structure in a way that creates the actionable insights to identify deep problems that you can solve really well in markets that are big enough to support you and your team. Hmm. So I'm curious about this learning framework that you said, but uh, like I, I couldn't write things fast enough while you were speaking 
<laughs> for so just quick quick recap i um what was so exceptional about your talking and frankly I, I i can't remember if it was a galvanize event or if it was we work but i um again still remember how i felt because at in while i was at thompson reuters right i was selling into the legal sector um, and I had been selling for a decade at this point, and so, or I sold for a decade. I was raised by a seller turned broker, and we were asked at the kitchen table every night, when did we feel butterflies in our stomach that day? And the implication there was if we had not felt uncomfortable, then we had not grown. And so also as an ADHD human, I had been learning and developing my, how to teach myself, right? For as long as I can remember. And there's been a bunch of funny stories where I share that. But anyway, so at Thomson Reuters, we, we were selling into the legal sector and I really kind of dislike, well, actually Sean, just so you know, I've, I have since shifted into sales enablement, which is adult learning. And so I too am very passionate about about the importance of, of learning as it relates to all these things. But anyway, to the point, in legal, right? I, I dislike when people are like, oh my God, well, you don't know, it's so much harder to sell into this sector. Like, and so I, like, I'm, I'm at the risk of doing that exact thing that I dislike. It's, it is difficult to sell tech and in, innovation into legal because in many ways you're up against the business model, which is, you know, the hourly business model take as long as humanly possible to do everything, right? So that's the opposite of efficiency gains. Also the business model, the, this is, it's partnership and the humans that are at the reins of said partnership committees are attorneys who have been trained to spot and eliminate all risk in a, you know, 10,000 mile radius and are the most gifted debaters. And, you know, I don't want to use the word arguer, but anyway, that said, our team was able to bring and develop something like six products to market. Four of them were new. Two of them had failed once already, and then we were able to turn it around. And so in a, like a four year period of time, and I think it was like six or seven, then going to view a bill, same kind of thing, 450% in uptick in, in Kager during my time there, which was nine months before we got acquired. So let's be serious about that. And after having gone through so many iterations in like a six or seven year period, I too was able to internalize a lot of the lessons and in, in kind of going through this process. However, it was very rare to hear spoken about from a podium or you know by a human with a microphone and influence in Silicon Valley. And I don't, Sean, I don't know if it was. I, I don't know what it was and, you know, maybe like, I, I don't know, but that was so refreshing and it was so amazing to hear. So thank you for that. And so, you know, listeners, everything that John said, like just, I, I, I second whole, whole, wholeheartedly. And I'm laughing because 
what you said about market acumen, that was actually, it came up on a conversation recorded yesterday with uh, a brilliant former colleague. He's a data scientist and, you know, um, you know, was an attorney and an invest, uh, like an investment analyst. And so just smart human being, but we talked about the lack of empowering field teams with market acumen. And I've lost count, Sean, how many times I've, I've put this particular topic, this business acumen, um, the gathering of the VOC of the client's clients, right? Which is another thing Mm -hmm. that came up in a conversation recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the no's are, I I don't know, I I guess hopefully things are starting to shift, but that is a massive value that we can bring to to field teams, go-to-market teams that we just, I don't see hardly ever. And if you just look at like the, the state of like onboarding in most cases, it's about the product, it's about the founding story, it's about the features. And, you know, we're, we're not teaching or training on how to storytell or create narratives that align with business problems or, you know, variations of business problems by end user. We're talking about, you know, the font police and making sure that everybody's using the type. The, and it's just pretty mind blowing to me. And so like, what, what would you say to those that are maybe still trapped inside the Silicon Valley startup filter bubble? I would say what we were just talking about, I, that you have to take control of your own learning. Um, and you have to, um, uh, you need to manage your own destiny in a way that allows you to differentiate yourself uh, in the marketplace, both as a person and a professional. There's no distinction anymore between personal and professional development. You develop a person, you're going to develop a professional. Um, and I too, you know, am an ADHD guy who's learned on his own over many, many years how to manage it because none of the quote unquote experts ever had good solutions other than drugs. Um, and I'm not into that. Um, so I learned how my mind was built. I learned how to manage it. And I learned that it was okay to be this way. And it wasn't anything I'd done to myself. Um, and I learned how to stop talking to myself in a way that was just so negative that it, um, that it impeded my ability to grow. Um, and there was a time in my life that I talked to my friends the way, uh, I talked to myself. I'd never have any friends. Um, and so it's the responsibility of the individual to, uh, to, you know, teaching is what other people do to you. Learning is what you do for yourself. Somebody said, I completely agree with that. And institutional education has always been designed as a way to just, you know, let's say put people in a box, manage them into that box and, 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 and get them out there. And, and in sales, we do, we take this top down quarter based approach towards driving behavior. We, we educate or train based on our company, our products, um, but not enough on our customer and their problems. Um, and so um, it's really important for you to just take charge of that yourself. And if you do, um, you will start to see results. And those results, eventually, people are going to ask you how you're getting the results you're getting. And hopefully, at that point, you can share how you're getting it um, because it's very different. Um, you made the comment of legal tech. Well, it's real hard to sell tech and legal. Sure, if that's the attitude and the approach that you take, but that's not how I look at it. It doesn't matter what the industry is. You're there to help people. So you need to find, figure out how you can help them. And if technology happens to be one of the ways in which you can help people, that's great. 
But the last thing you talk about is technology. Um, technology is the how. You don't talk about the how. You focus on the who and the what. Um, and then based on that, you can sort you can solve things with different through different means. I'm not a technologist by trade. Uh, I can't even spell HTML, but I know what technology can do to make the world a better place, solve problems and, and, and help people. And it's exciting to see that kind of change happen. Um, and that's what gets me excited. And I know that that's what motivates me. Um, and so technology is where I've chosen to apply, uh, you know, my skill set. Um, but it wasn't like I picked it. Um, and so companies have to get out of that, that company centric mindset and more into that market customer centric mindset and start teaching from the customer back, not from the product forward. You know, it's funny on the ADHD front, how, yeah, I mean, you're spot on. I, I heard you and I feel that hard about having to learn how to manage your brain differently. And it kind of plays into what you were saying about the difference between teaching and learning. And I, I think one of the biggest flaws in the way that this country approaches formal education is that it's, it's something that happens to you and it ends at a certain time, oh, date, right? Uh, upon graduation, as opposed to just a lifelong uh, thing. And even when I think about, you, you mentioned learning framework earlier, like they're, the way that schools are designed, right? They're catering to the mainstream or the majority. And there's a lot of people that learn. I mean, everyone, just like everyone has a love language, right? There's a lot of different learning styles. And yes. one of the things that I don't think that we speak of often enough is the competency quadrant. And these are the four phases of learning. Right. So first phase is unconscious incompetence and mm -hmm. also known as ignorance is bliss. And this yeah. is a fantastic place to be for obvious reasons. The second phase is conscious incompetence, then conscious competence, and then on to unconscious competence. But right. that second phase of conscious incompetence is painful. I mean, like really, really, really painful. Like you're staring in the mirror sure. of truth. You're going through learning curves. And most people don't hang around long enough to see those results kind of come through um, right. by, by way of themselves growing, right? As a, to your phenomenal point, right? Just as a human and, and professional, which are the same thing. And there's, there are ways to, once you understand like learning frameworks and I dare I say hack them, there, there's a way to expedite your, your moving through phase two. And that is, I equate it to either like ripping off the bandaid or pulling off the bandaid one slow hair at a time. And so for seller listener friends, it's like you could do a hundred calls over the course of a year, or you could do them in a week and the learnings are there. And so that that's a way to expedite that. But I think that even now being in sales enablement, right, which was I, I've been doing it now, Sean, just, you know, for about seven years, built two departments. Um, it was a rocky transition, frankly, because in, when you're a seller, it, like the, the only career options available to you in most instances are, you know, be a sales manager, 
which I knew from a, for a very long time that I did not want to be or keep selling. And so, but anyway, once I got to sales enablement, like talk about using and quantifying value, the metric that I look at and focus on is the learning indicator, because I don't consider my job to be complete until retain like the knowledge or skill, whatever we're talking about is retained at a, a you know, at least 80% level across the board. And then I look at how other sales enablement departments are functioning, right? And they think of those like, you know, silly proxies, like number of people that attended a training, percentage completion, maybe we threw in a little quiz at the end. And so like, I, I think that this not understanding of this learning framework is a big part of what is impeding us from moving forward, specifically as it relates to, you know, startups. Yeah, look, and this this ties back to what we talked about earlier when you asked me about the, to find the innovation economy and the skills required to be successful in it. How do you execute on that? My learning framework has four pillars. It's mindset, mastery, career, and community, right? So adopting and managing that growth mindset, um, knowing that there is a path to mastery. You use the competency framework. I use the mastery framework, very similar, which is knowledge, competency, proficiency, and ultimately mastery. Here's what you know, here's what you're able to do, here's what you can do really well, and then here's, once you're at the mastery level, you should be able to teach it back. Um, and then career is how do you apply this to your overall career goals and your career strategy? Um, and things like finding mentors, and how do you define a mentor? Somebody who's already accomplished what you want to accomplish that's willing to give back because someone gave back to them, right? Um, and then how do you build a, a career path that gets you what you want personally, not just professionally? Um, and then ultimately community. How do you build a community around yourself to support you? The people who want what's best for you, who um, always keep your best interests at heart um, and can help you think through things and essentially create a brain trust um, for people of the different areas where you think you need to work on the most. And they don't always have to necessarily be people you have a direct one-to-one -one personal relationship with. It can be people who you listen to or read from or follow or, or, um, or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, just consuming their ideas and their, and their content um, to do it. Um, and that, that's the path for me to developing those skills that you, that you need. I love that. I love that. Even with mastery, like when you said, teach it back to others, that is the base of the learning pyramid, which is just a, it breakdowns the tactics and, you know, what like percentage of retention. And so the base of the pyramid, yeah. so 90% of what we learn is routine when we teach it to others. And this is why one of the first, uh, <laughs> to do's for me is to create a peer-to-peer -peer standing meeting for team members to not just share and cross-pollinate or to, you know, their wins, right? But also to share and cross-pollinate those mistakes, those losses, where frankly, we, we tend to learn far more from. Absolutely. And so like, I love that. And even the community, I'm reminded of Dewan Brown's episode, who is a director over at Seismic, pretty phenomenal tech helping to level up, go to market, all things go to market and apply more stories into mm -hmm. the process, which is pretty, pretty exceptional. 
Um, okay, so I'm curious about what is it? What is the the current company? It's U U Plus. Is that how to? That's right, U Plus. What's the story with U Plus and the, this these countries that you work with? And yeah, sure. Um, U Plus is a so I I acquired half the company last year. Um, it's a very successful corporate venture builder. We build startups for Fortune 1000 companies. So I've taken all my 25 plus years of experience of building and, and exiting startups and investing in them and helping them grow. And I'm now applying it to helping corporations as well as governments um, uh, do the same thing. Um, and here's why. Um, what I started to notice and see is I started to get dragged into corporate innovation work as I built my startup accelerator because we were doing so much business with corporates helping them um, through working with our startups is that they struggled with launching new products and markets in the same way um, at a greater failure rate than even the invested startup community does. We know for a fact that 70% of funded startups fail. We know that eight of the top 10 reasons they fail have to do with people and markets, not products and technology. In in, in, um, in corporate, it's 95%. According to Nielsen, 20,000 new products roughly are launched every year and less than 5% last more than three years in the market. Um, and it's for very much the same reasons, plus all the internal innovators dilemma reasons that we all know. They're focused on the core business. They don't have the right stage relevant teams, um, things like that. So what I saw happening was is they were, they were doing kind of the classic thing. They were hiring the big management consulting firms, paying them by the slide, to give them a deck that told them what to do. And then they turn around and try and recruit people inside their organization to actually do it. Those people didn't have the right mindset, the right skill set or experience, the right execution framework um, to do this well. And they certainly weren't imbued with the startup DNA that comes from people like myself in the Valley. And this company, U Plus, I, I ran across, was doing great work and had been doing this work for years in, in Europe. Um, because corporate venture building is a very mature model in Europe. Why? Because they don't have a robust startup ecosystem. So they can't rely on the startup community like we do out here in the, in the States for a lot of our innovations. So the build bar partner buy strategy isn't, is used as often in Europe. Well, in the US, which it has been used most often for, it's starting to, these corporations are starting to recognize that they're not getting the return on the investments in the build buy partner strategy with the startup community. So now they're saying, we should build a lot of the stuff ourselves. We have the customers, we know the use cases, we have a big ecosystem, we've got resources, we can find out what they want. Um, but the problem is, is they don't have the teams to build it. So U Plus brings these non-dilutive co-founding teams in to literally launch these businesses from idea to revenue. Um, and I was actually a customer before I became a partner in the company. Uh, and I was so impressed with the work they were doing and how they were doing it. And the fact that the whole team comes from the startup community, a very different approach. In, and I think what is most needed right now in the market. So now we literally do venture labs as a service for large organizations. We help them run a portfolio, create a portfolio based approach towards venture building. They curate a series of ideas based on what's going on in their markets with their customers and what they're adopting and then trying to fast follow and build things that their customers will use based on their current behaviors um, as a way to continue to stay relevant out in front of their competition. And the only gap, the only thing missing there were these stage relevant teams and that's, that's where we come in to do it. And we've launched close to 100 digital businesses and created north of a billion dollars in market value for our clients doing that in the last five years. Yes, Sean, that's amazing. I, 
it's do they still call them skunk works or is that has that term no, kind no, of gone those to the way those are still there, but the idea of, a, of an innovation lab where you're coming up with intellectual property is one aspect of it. That's the very beginning. But what okay. do you do with that? How what do you do, you do with it? Okay. How do you make money off of that thing? Right. Um, the, the lab rats that are doing that don't have any idea um, because they're not outside the building talking to customers. Mm -hmm. They're four, five, six levels removed from the customer. Um, and so most of these things die on the vine. So we will take those ideas and that intellectual property and then we'll stack rank those and prioritize which ones to test in the market, validate, find proof of market, and then ultimately commercialize, build, and launch. And we'll do the full gamut. We'll do the validation, we'll do the ideation, the validation, the testing, the launch, or the build and the launch, and then scale, and then transition it back into the organization or help them spin it out if they want. The last post that I did on LinkedIn, which is funny, it wasn't about an, an episode that's going live. It was about how there are three types of problems, tech problems, process problems, human problems, and mm -hmm. that human, that a tech, a tech purchase will not solve a human problem and mm -hmm. humans solve human problems. And so Yay. I, I heard that loud and clear in what you just shared. So that's flipping awesome. And I'm, it's funny when, when I was in San Francisco, I ended up becoming affiliated with code for America and a oh, code for America yeah. spin out called next request. And one of the last episodes that I did is actually a, a police chief in mountain view who was a prospect and buyer while I was out there. And first of all, it's a pretty phenomenal episode, but I think that I, I just have a lot of respect for those that are working with government entities to inject innovation from a human perspective um, and process perspective, because in, in many instances, it's far easier to seek out a tech acquisition or buy something that in the hopes of, of, you know, addressing a root cause problem, which, which doesn't work. The second thing though, that I wanted to share is that one, I, do you know, Prashung, he's in Mountain View. Have you ever come across any of his talks? He's a massive influencer in the police space and about, you know, repairing the trust between communities and the police department and how to maintain that. And so I'm thinking about their just intro and just if that's not a thing. And then the second human that came to mind is a woman named Saida Nash. And Saida was the chief of staff of the CEO at Thomson Reuters while I was there, also the board member for Junior Achievement, which is one of my faves, right? So I spent a year like in inner city high schools teaching um, you know, teenagers about money. And so I ended up getting plucked out of the classroom to go support, you know, Sayada's new direction. Anyway, she's in Africa now and she's doing a tremendous amount of work with intrapreneurs inside corporations. Mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. two are pretty simpatico there. And I'm reminded like I should, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta beg Sayada to come be on the show. Sure. But anyway, so it sounds like well, but there's an interesting fundamental to that I would recommend every one of your listeners to research and try and understand if they haven't already heard of the concept of human-centered design thinking. Um, but it's really changed, fundamentally changed for me, how I approach 
most things when I'm trying to solve problems. Um, and it was the precursor to what we all now know is user experience in UX, right? And we all know the value of UX. Amazon's the most, not the most valuable company in the world because they make things. They're the most valuable company in the world because they make things easy. So they've taken a human-centered design approach towards trying to solve problems in the, in the marketplace and be that layer between us and what we're looking for. Um, and if you apply human-centered design thinking um, to, to the sales process, for example, or to, to just approaching any problem, it's amazing what you can uncover uh, and the insights that you can use to actually really try to identify and, and, and create value. And you can do it so much more efficiently than traditional um, sort of bottom-up approach. I'm smiling because the episode that goes live today, as soon as we get we finish up, is is with a extraordinary human, brilliant from Mexico, anyway, in the rev scene. But anyway, so Lorena Morales was singing the praises of human-centered design thinking as well. But I, it's funny because I'm curious about your opinion. So right after Thomson Reuters, I, so I was selling information, right. Which mm -hmm. is a function of, you know, aligning with business decisions when they happen, who are, who's making them and how to use information and, and design it to be applied ubiquitously, depending on, you know, the end user. I, I made it so after that, I made a beeline for like traditional process improvement certification mm -hmm. so that I myself could understand, you know, just the, the mechanics of process and, and how that worked. And so when I think about facilitating a DMAIC project or a DMADV, which is define phase, measure phase, analyze phase for both of them, and then mm -hmm. for existing processes, it's improve and control. And for new ones, it's design and verify. And so the first three phases are spent in really understanding the problem and confirming and measuring the issues that are created by the problem and confirming for root cause before we, you know, invest all this time and energy in most instances, chasing after symptoms indefinitely. And so, but the Lorena and I, we bantered about how, where the overlap was between design thinking and, you know, let's say a lean Six Sigma hybrid um, mm -hmm. type of training. And so what, what would you say to, to that? Um, I think everything should be led with human-centered design thinking. <laughs> um, and um, okay. no, look, I get process improvement and I get Six Sigma and I get all that stuff. Um, our head of ideation, Dr. Wayne Neal, he was on Nantucket Island as one of the original Nantucket 20 that coined the term UX. And um, he'd be a great guest for you because he's also been an enterprise sales leader and one of the leading UX design thinkers on the planet. Okay. So What's his partner, name again? Dr. Wayne Neal, N-E-A-L-E. -E. I'm happy to connect you. I think you'd have a fantastic conversation because he can talk to you about how to apply design-centered thinking in everything that you do. Um, Ashley Welch actually wrote a, a, a really good book called Naked Sales um, a couple of years ago. And it's the first one that I've seen that's properly incorporated um, human-centered design thinking approaches into um, the sales process. And the whole idea is to be um, insights-led in your sales methodology. So you can do all the research and use a human-centered design thinking approach to really create key insights before you even engage a customer. Because that's what people want. They want insights. Um, and they want to know that you understand. Um, so another good 
candidate for your for your show certainly is Ashley Welch um, and Justin Walsh is her her, uh, her partner. Uh, they're out of Boston, but and they do they do a ton for like Salesforce and a bunch of the other big companies on insights led um, selling, and it's all by applying simple design thinking approaches towards the sales process and uncovering those problems more deeply. But don't just uncover the problems and identify. Find out what you can do to solve them and share those insights. You know, it's so funny. I think that that's so interesting because, you know, when I think about the buyer's journey and the, the, as a seller, right. The, when, when we're, when we're doing it properly to put ourselves in target rich environments and, you know, position ourselves as subject matter experts so that when the buyer's team, plural, right. Buying team, and Mm -hmm. this is not just one person when the buying team is ready to take on the problem, like, Oh gosh, darn it. It's, we knew this day would come. And so, you know, it's time to call Sean, it's time to call Amy. Like that is a, I don't know. I bet that would be a fun debate about, you know, the nature of that trigger event versus the insights. And now you're, you're also speaking with someone who, you know, I, I'm chuckling, remember my remembering my bookmarks bar in my Chrome browser that was organized by business problem and uh-huh. all of the Google alerts set up by business problem and pouring through those that content on a regular basis just so that I could be able to recall and share with the right person at the right time. Hey, saw this thinking of you type of, uh-huh. of insight sharing mm-hmm. before the motion during the motion, mm-hmm. after the motion. I, I mean, just so across the board, but anyway, so that I think that that would be fun banter. All right, so I'm looking at the clock here. There are two questions that I that I like to, well, actually one, but I'm gonna do two of them here. And the final one is one piece of advice about uncomfortable conversations. And then the one before that, which I'm gonna start with is what, um, What's the hardest conversation that you yourself have had to have on, on, on this front? But before, before we go into those, do you have anything coming up by way of, you know, new book, new talk, new anything that, you know, we just want to, I don't want to say plug, but is there anything very cool and interesting coming up that, that our listeners and myself really, it's, it's about me, should be aware of? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a quiet year because of COVID, right? So I haven't been on the road. Um, and we've been building our house in Montana and it's been crazy. Um, and, um, so I've been doing a lot of podcasts, a lot of virtual things. Um, I'll be, you know, I think my first <laughs> in person speaking event is at an innovation conference in, in, um, in, uh, Keystone, Colorado in August. Uh, but keep an eye out on the U plus website for that or follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, and I think next year, it feels like things will start ramping. Probably back in the fall, this fall, start ramping up and doing some things. Um, but I I think the book is going to be probably another year away. I'm continuing to refine our methodologies for how to execute on innovation, um, and want to publish around that. But we're slowly publishing blog posts every week with pieces of what's going to become that book on the on the U Plus website. Of course, follow the company page there as well. Um, but that's what's going on with me. Excellent. And all of those things will be linked in the show notes, friends. Yeah. And uh, there's 
<laughs> I can't think of a better way to invest time and energy into yourselves than to just like follow everything that Sean's doing and just apply it to the letter of the law, like without question. Um, but, you know, let's keep, let's keep that open mind and, you know, let go of our rightness and what have you. All right. So, so the hardest conversation that you yourself have ever had to have um, in the revenue realm. And so this could be employee, hiring manager, peer, client, prospect, you know, hell, uh, I've, I've, it, to me, it's all, it's simple. Cause I've had, I've had the same one several times. Um, and it's walking away from a shit ton of money because I wasn't going to compromise my integrity. <laughs> and you can imagine all the different ways that plays out. Yeah, I can. I don't even have to imagine very hard cause I'm like living it. So, so it's that or firing a customer. Mm because of how they treat my people. Used to be more difficult, gotten real easy. And I'll tell you why. Because it's always worked out for the best for everyone involved. And that's, that's the key to it. You know, it's funny, I'm, what I heard in that, and I, wanted, I wanna call it out just to make sure that everyone who is also listening to this caught it as well, that the more that we lean into discomfort and uncomfortable conversations, our capacity for said discomfort increases. Very much. And I, I've adopted a philosophy called hugging the elephant. So if there's an elephant in the room, you go hug it, right? And you start the conversation with that idea that we're, we're big elephant huggers here. And the elephant in the room is this. And then how do you manage and, and run that difficult conversation? There's a, there's a book that changed my life called How to Have Difficult Conversations written by a couple of Harvard professors. And it all, it talks about a couple of key tenets. Number one being never assume intent on the side of the other party. Yes. Um, and then always, and never take a, a defensive posture, but take a learning posture. And then always start with the conversation from the perspective of a third party. If you want to manage a difficult conversation, take yourself out of your role and put yourself in the role of a mediator. How would a mediator manage this conversation? Um, and how would they run it from a third party perspective? Okay. And never tell people what they did to you. Explain to them how their actions made, made you, you feel, feel, how you received it. Cause it's not what you say. It's what people hear that matters most. Note to self, go read up on mediators and their framework. Um, so, yeah. and I, I say that with a complete straight person. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know what the other one, Maria Bross, this one's for you, Sean, there was a young woman that I, I mentored last year and she landed at a, she's a big time sales leader now. And so it was her first job, but I used to do this with with prospects um, during sales motions, but, and I can't believe she actually did this. Okay. But too, she, during her final presentation to the hiring committee, she started with a slide that, and I, I tossed this out there. I was like, wouldn't it be crazy if you did this? Like this always worked for me. Like when, when sourcing, um, you know, objections early on in the deal, but like, so here's with the picture of the elephant as the visual on the slide, like, here's why I wouldn't hire me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And she started with that damn thing. And so like, I think about the, the kahunas to, you know, do something like that, but you're I spot get, on. I get where she's coming from. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've laughed at the idea that the companies that have bought my companies never would have hired me because I don't fit the template. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I know, know all about that one. Okay, last one. Final piece of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. And I think you just hit, like you covered this I, well, in your again, other one. Yeah. So number one is, number one is, is that 95% of the things that you, that, that you think are going to happen never happen. So don't compromise your integrity. Hug the elephant. Always tell, tell the truth or at least don't lie. <laughs> and, and don't assume intent on the other person's. Excellent. Sorry. But also run the scenarios through your mind in an objective and non-emotional way before you have the conversation. And by the way, here's the number one rule of difficult conversations. Never have them asynchronously. Do not use email. Do not use text. Do not use third-party chat shit. Try not to do it on the phone if you can. But always do it live, if it, in person or with video. And I know it's not as easy to do things in person right now, but do it live. Every difficult conversation should be a live conversation. Wow, I don't think anyone said that. That is excellent. That is excellent. Okay, so I just one last question to follow up to that. What would you say? when, when a, a difficult conversation needs to happen in order to repair or should happen, but one party, let's more often than not in a position of power mm -hmm. chooses to not engage or not repair. And instead just like sever said relationships ever said, whatever in a way that is not human. Right, almost like dehumanizing the harm that was done. I, I think I'm, maybe I'm not phrasing it properly, but what? How have you? Well, look, if somebody <clears throat> if somebody wants to cut off the relationship, they're doing That's me it. and them a favor. Um, because the longer I live, the less people, frankly, I trust. It doesn't. I don't want to be a negative thing when I say it that way, but there, you don't need and you can't make everybody happy. So. You know, focus on the people who want what's best for you and you want what's best for them. And you're saving yourself a lot of time and effort and drama if you remove toxic behavior from your life. Wow. Oh my God. That's fucking brilliant. So I've got, I'm, there's not a chance I'm going to top that one because I couldn't, I didn't even think of that one. And so with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean Shepard for making time for us. Thank you for doing what you do and being such a, a bright spot and a, almost swimming against the current of, I don't know, groupthink and or the filter bubble. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that because that's an intentional thing on my part. Oh man, I fucking see it. It's masterful. And I, I, yeah, again, still remember those feelings from four years ago. Like, oh, thank God, at least someone's here. Like, oh my goodness gracious. And so look for those introductions. So you should definitely check out uh, Chris Young's, uh, this is the chief of police in Mountain View, right? So okay. his episode is is really good. There's uh and then the Saida Nash intro is absolutely coming your yes, way. And I'll make Wayne, I'll make the intro to Wayne for you. That would be amazing. All right, friend. Have Thank a you, great Amy. day. Enjoy the valley. And listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends. Happy selling. Ooh. Man, that was heavy. But necessary, you know, important, important stuff being thrown around. Virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on. I heard words like trust. I heard words like action. I heard words like consistency. And uh, I think.
think this is important. But I, I also live in the real world, right? Where I trust that the action Amy didn't take was to consistently feed the dog or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis. Karen is going to be pissed. Karen! All right, friends. The only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play. Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes. Yeah, call, absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Maybe we can boss you around for a couple hours? Yeah, please. By all means, call. If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go, definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I, I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify, but you know, I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta. Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal, we are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here. You know, stuff, legal stuff. You know, it's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there, there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there, but you know, it's, it's just, it's wrapped up in a story. Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. Chewy.com. Possible sponsor. Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pets. Come come sit up on my lap. I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I mean, I don't have a premium account because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to the, them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them, and I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All right, friends, thank you for listening to the conversation. For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro, and that's a wrap. I can't, I can't, I can't. So this is Pete your disclaimer specialist coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show, because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, um, I must be. So here goes, um, as the outroer to the outro E I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I, I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. Um, I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live. I uh, have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. Um, but again, these are difficult conversations that we're, Amy's having with, with her guests, and, and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest because, you know, we have been.
So we can all be better. We can all do better together. And no, I'm just rambling at this point. It's just, who cares? It's an outro, right? Like this is just going to fade into blackness. Like the Mars Rover, maybe a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad. Come on, guys. We can do better.